Hello and welcome to the People Grow Places podcast, where we explore the virtuous circle of people, growth and place. Brought to you by Grow Places and hosted by our founder, Tom Larson. Hi Tash. Hi. How are you doing? Good, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. It's really good to meet and to, to do this properly. You know, we've been connecting over social media on the back of our podcast and the work that you're doing. So it's great to do that and great to connect. Pleasure, um, nice to see you. Yeah, good. In real life. Exactly, in real <laughs> life. <laughs> so I just want to start by asking, you know, talking about social media, you're very present on there. You know, you do your your daily or weekly um, short videos that you do where you're talking to the community. Um, so maybe you could give us a little bit of an introduction to, to yourself and, and why you why you feel the need to kind of to do that and project in that way. And it's really great to see for someone in your position to be doing that. Um, thanks. Yeah, I um, actually the walk and talks and the brain dumps, whatever you want to call them, they started during lockdown, and it was really a way of being able to talk around what we were trying to do, how we were trying to work, and make sure that we kept to the qualities that were really important to us in setting up a new vision. And back then it was really more about how do you set up a good team? How do you ask the right questions? Uh, what does a good brief look like? Those sorts of things. They were really quite practical. Um, and I got so much really positive feedback about how we were sort of breaking it down and making it sound like development management was something that was more accessible, uh, that it kind of, it, it kept me going for quite a while during lockdown. Uh, I have... Uh, a couple of different accounts. So I have my own Natasha McIntyre Hall and then I have Mindful Regenerist. So Mindful Regenerist came about during uh, my time working for local authorities uh, to allow me to say things that I thought were really important without necessarily making sure that that was a council view. So it became quite important. And once I had that ability to be able to sort of disconnect and talk about things that were really important to me, I started getting quite a few messages about how people would like to do things differently, um, which is one of the hashtags I use the most often, doing things differently. Um, and so now I really use those kind of, yeah, walk and talk brain dumps. I try to keep them to a minimum, sorry, a maximum of two minutes. Every so often I go over, but I'm mostly I try and keep them really short. And I talk about things that I think are pertinent, things that we should be considering about how we want to live our lives and about how do we make better places? How do we improve places for as many people as we possibly can? And I believe that holistic design is really the key to that rather than trying to solve something with a product at the end of it. So outcomes over outputs. Um, so yeah, and the reason that I do it, um, Partly I'm a kinesthetic learner. So for me, it's really important when I'm moving around, suddenly my brain just starts activating and I have all of these things. Um, but partly because I, I want to show that I don't necessarily the right answers. It's not about me saying this is the way forward. This is me exploring ideas that are going around my head. So, and I think it's important to put it out there. I wanted to put more TikTok style content on LinkedIn because the more I looked at LinkedIn there are so many wonderful people and so many people I really respect who've got these wonderful articles and I, I have every good intention of reading them and then I save them for another day and I never ever look at them again and so I just wanted something that was easier to digest and uh, so yeah I thought perhaps videos was a way of doing it and it's been lovely I get, I get loads and loads of positive feedback and people talking to me about the videos so it obviously resonates with people <laughs> yeah no it's great and as i say i think it's i think it's really really refreshing as i say particularly to see someone in the senior position like yourself within the industry 
doing that and and it's close to my heart as well this ability to kind of communicate sort of almost vertically within the industry between different specialists but also this idea that you're communicating not just with the industry with communities with with uh, everyday people who are occupying the places and the spaces that we're all kind of creating and so so in that in that vein then um out of those kind of short videos you do are there any that really kind of get traction any subjects that kind of people really kind of engage with more than more than others would you say the ones uh, i tend to get quite a bit of feedback from but a lot of it is questions is really when i start looking at digital intervention and so i've spoken a fair bit about whether or not cryptocurrency is an ability to look at a localized currency to change value of how you interact with the community. I think that's really powerful. Whether or not it happens is a different matter. But the idea starting from sort of donor economics um, and talking around a localized token that rewarded people for picking up rubbish or caring for kids or or eating more healthily and how you could spend that token within the economy and raise the game. But crypto is basically that same thing. So the idea of then connecting into that and considering whether or not that could attach to uh, an NFT community that represents a physical group and what benefits you could bring, things like that are really important. But they get a particular type of interest. The bit that seems to have the most interest is when I start talking around, we talk a lot around the fact that town centres and city centres are dying, but if I go to any of my friends' houses and talk to their kids who are playing Roblox, they all go to the town centres in order to trade because that's where they get the best things, the best information, best games, or they meet their friends. Now, if that's what they're doing there, what are we missing in terms of what's what what's not right in the physical environment that we could learn from digital environment? Taking that a little bit further, which is the sort of thing that I love, is being able to have these meandering thoughts about what could or couldn't be. There are so many kids and young adults particularly, but so many people generally who are making memories sitting at the end of their bed and they're doing it through a computer screen. Now, as people who are place designers, it feels to me that that's a real missed opportunity. And in order to create legacy of place, we need memory. And so we need to find a way of getting people to come out and experience that. But we also need to allow them to be their authentic selves. And so for me, this idea that we have, we can overlay like virtual sort of filters on a place so that it has more meaning to you. I don't know why we wouldn't engage that within physical design. And I think there are some fairly straightforward things that we could do that would allow people to experience things in a way that has meaning for them and therefore create more legacy. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And, and as you're talking there, you know, for, for any kind of, if you look back over history, any sort of innovation, whether it's technology or cultural innovation, you, you kind of need um, uh, a few things to fall into place at any one time, don't you? Mm -hmm. So you need the kind of the cultural drive with the right technology landing at the right time to enable some of these things to happen. And it does feel like you mentioned NFTs, you mentioned kind of like almost like the gamification of physical place. It does feel like we're kind of at one of those moments where with um, virtual reality, with artificial intelligence, with crypto, um, and that, that kind of gaming culture that sort of Gen Zs and obviously Gen Alphas, when they come up, have been through, it does feel like it's maybe one of those moments where these stars are aligning a little bit to allow some of these things to, to be integrated. And then I guess for us all in the built environment, it's kind of trying to marry those two systems, you know, one which is 
quite a rapid um, iterative pace of design and change, i.e. in technology and digital worlds with our world, which is slower, more kind of stage based um, and, and change happens over a longer period. So do you have anything to add to, to that really about those, how those two worlds actually kind of come together, maybe in, in practice on projects um, through procurement? Well, I think it's really interesting because I think things like NFTs, it's just a token. It doesn't matter what it is. My my mortgage is an NFT, essentially. It's just in a community of one. So um, I think there's loads of things that we've talked about there already that are already getting included. You know, when you go to a supermarket and you've got, a, uh, you've got your loyalty card, uh, there's no reason why that couldn't then you're in the NFT community of Sainsbury's or whatever it is. And then you get your loyalty points, which is the gamification. And you had a previous guest on um, a good few weeks ago around fractional ownership. And and I even wrote to you then about yeah. the idea of using gamification there for once you've been renting with them for a year, then you get a particular NFT or something that allows you to do something or a particular um, discount or, or membership or whatever it is. So I think Lots of those things are already included within it, but designing a physical place for um, loyalty and to bring people back helps with that legacy. And then you said procurement, which thank you. Um, at the moment, it feels like there are an awful lot of uh, procurements that are going out there that lack a solid brief. And I think brief has changed over time as well. And so I do think that there should be more opportunity for conversation. And so if briefs were there and able to focus on outcomes, like a more healthy community or a greener community or um, a space for people to come together or employment space, you know, I'm not just going for the altruistic stuff, but I do feel that quite a lot of procurement, particularly in local authority at the moment says, I would like this number of units in this much space. That's not a brief, that's policy. So how do we then open it up to find out who's actually got something to offer and how do you have conversations? Because it's really important that we stay relevant. And that's really what's what I'm talking about here is these innovations that are coming through are just ways to try and make you connect more with a place. But if the place is unable, I suppose, to adapt to that, then they will find somewhere else. And so, yeah, I think procurement and, and writing briefs is a really important way of considering how places can adapt in the future. Because we talk about f uh, flexible buildings and flexible spaces all the time. But unless we know what we want that outcome to be and how we want them to be flexible or how they want to serve people, they will lack meaning. And then that will, that will give us more problems about what we're designing in the future. And let's face it, we don't really want a, a beige design comes out with a, a beige procurement which gives everyone a beige product at the end and then no one's happy there are much better more cost effective ways of having really good conversations around what innovation we need to make space for mm. yeah absolutely and, and as you say avoiding that kind of race to the bottom in terms of it becoming quite a binary thing in procurement mm -hmm. and trying to look at some of those yeah those sort of maybe those qualitative aspects of the procurement process as well as strictly speaking the quantitative and i know that very much you know we're obviously a young business you know we really have the aspiration to do work public private partnerships etc but there's obviously a barrier to entry with some mm -hmm. of those procurement methods that it would be great to think of there's a way to foster innovation and foster kind of newer ways of thinking through that which hopefully 
has a benefit to all really. So yeah, really interested to, to keep talking about that with you. Um, if I, if you don't mind, just step back for a second. Mm. I'm, I'm, I've been making a couple of notes, obviously not too many, but just a couple of the words really. So, which maybe you tell me, but kind of feel like they tied to maybe some deeper sort of values for you around obviously regeneration, future, futurism, uh, being mindful. And then some of these kind of, um, more empathetic things about, you know, creating something that's accessible, something that stays relevant and has meaning for, for people other than yourself. So where do you think some of these kind of values and, um, deeper purpose led things come from for you? I've, as long as I can remember, I've always had a strong desire to leave the world a better place than I arrived into it. And I think doing, working at councils for a while, um, I think it was a really, it was a really glorious thing to do to understand that communities are made up of all sorts of things. And, um, and it really, really, it, it really resonated with me. Um, I also qualified as a teacher. And when I uh, did my final dissertation for my teaching qualification, I had to write in there um, a whole piece around inclusion and whether or not we should have inclusive teaching. So whether or not we should have special needs kids in with mainstream kids. Um, and I find that the ability to argue either side of that is, I think, really important to understand different points of view of the fact that you want to give, make sure everyone has the best possible chance. And so they may need something that's specialised from them. But unless you understand other people's struggles, you can't necessarily understand how to adapt for them to make things easier for them. And the same is really true in, in cities and, and designing places. If you want more people to be able to use them, you've got to understand the struggles that people have with what's already there. So my walk and talk this morning was actually about lighting and about the fact that in the UK, at least three months of the year is spent leaving in the morning in the dark and coming back in the dark, whether or not it's school or work or whatever. So what are we doing to make that easier for people? Um, the main project I had in Portsmouth uh, was all around health and well-being, and it was the idea that back in the day, apartment blocks were built, and they were designed that you, you know, your home was the place that you sleep. Now our definition has changed, and it is that community that you are a part of. But if you walk out of your apartment and you don't know who's on the other side of the door and then you have to negotiate your way down, you walk out the front door and you're walking into the curtilage of a car park on the side of a road, suddenly that oppression is is right there. And for somebody, in inverted commas there, of um, somebody normal, then this may not be a problem. But anybody who is not normal, then this this could be problematic. And when you start to define how many people are, in that case, not normal, it may well be someone who has, um, who's got visual impairment. It may well be someone who's walking with walking sticks, someone in a walking chair, uh, sorry, a wheelchair. It may be someone who's got two kids that they're trying to negotiate or someone just with a load of shopping. Then you start going into anything that's sort of neurodiverse and suddenly you realise there's no such thing as normal. And yet there are some things that we can do around better lighting, being able to see where you're going, understanding what your route is, um, having flat walkways, uh, taking away cars so that you can move around more easily or having cars their designated space. There are so many different ways that you can include people and make them more part of the community. 
Just sorry to interrupt you, Matt. What no, it's would great. Be, this is really great. So, so what would be some of those practical steps, maybe in the work that you've done um, in the past, or maybe now now at Glee, to, about how you get some of those voices that, into the process at the right time? So, um, yeah, through the work that you're doing on projects or, mm. or in places. There's a huge opportunity through um, engagement to actually understand how people do it, but. Um, touring engagements and actually seeking people out to find out what they really feel is genuinely important. So um, we had, uh, we've looked at various things, street parties and, and panels, whereby the idea of having someone who is doing street art um, or graffiti on the side of hoarding so that everyone can join in and they feel like they've got a bit of ownership you can let kids do that for a while whilst in the meantime you speak to parents and say look do you know this is what's coming this is this is how we're doing it how does it make you feel about your area you have to be able to offer someone something for their opinion because so many times people have been asked their opinion and they feel rightly or wrongly that it's gone nowhere so how can you give them something that means that their opinion is is worth something. And that's where panels come in as well. And ideally, if you can pay someone to be part of your panel as a public sector, you're showing that their opinion is worthwhile and you are, and you are really acknowledging them as part of the group. But engaging it in the, in the curriculum is really important. I mean, this whole idea of people who are hard to reach, they're not hard to reach. It's just that you're only trying to speak to them in the way that you want to. So we did an exercise again in Portsmouth with um, non-verbal adults. Uh, and we did the whole thing through sort of colouring and stuff. And it was really interesting if they're, sorry, not non-verbal. They were, um, couldn't read and write. That was the one. Um, but they had... Um, they, they had the ability to tell us what they found difficult and why signposting was difficult for them. And so we looked at whether or not we could use um, planting or landscaping or whether we could use colours. Um, how could we make it so that they knew where they were and they could describe to someone else where they were? Um, so, yeah, there's, there's loads of things like that. Another one is really interesting, really small thing, um, but really important, we found. When we start looking at trying to densify places because quite a lot of places do need more densification. Um, you start looking at families living in apartments. So if um, young Josephine wants to play a trumpet and you're living in an apartment, what does that do? And does that make you feel anxious? Do you worry about upsetting your neighbours? Actually, where is the space somewhere else for her to go and practice playing the trumpet so that years later she can become a, a very famous trumpet player? Can we incorporate that somewhere within the um uh somewhere within the place that we're designing when you start asking these questions what we find is it's a real leveler against our um design team because it then doesn't matter if you've been there for 20 years or or several months because your experience is what actually allows you to ask the what if questions and then you start to get somewhere about okay well actually we have got space for this and we could do this and and we could set up um, sensory planting so that people can hear, you know, people who are blind can actually hear the fact that the, the grass is rustling and so they know where they are. There are so many different ways that you can do it. There's also loads and loads of different ways of measuring success. Once you start thinking around that, you can then uh, you could then measure how many GP appointments people have per year, how many people are part of the rental bike scheme, how many people have set up a club in the last year. 
these are things that you can measure in numbers, which makes them real metrics. <laughs> and so then you don't necessarily have to be just money and design, but you can start to understand what it's doing to benefit. And it's not just house numbers. Mm. No, super interesting. Thank you for that. And um, so your work, obviously now you're, you're at Glees, you're in mm. the uh, private sector yeah. and the development, but you're working predominantly on public sector kind of opportunities and, and, and land. And obviously you've worked, as you say, at Portsmouth in the, the uh, public sector. Can you see any, um, you know, you, you're seeing things from both sides in a sense, um, in terms of what you've just discussed there about how in a practical sense we go about actually making some of these things real in terms of the process of the project. Do you, do you see a lot of commonalities in the way that both sides are approaching it or is the certain learnings you have from being within a local authority that you would kind of, you now lean on as a kind of, maybe it's about governance or about structure or about uh, different stakeholder groups, how you kind of go about sort of um, facilitating some of this to, to really come through? Oh my goodness, there are so many questions within that question. Um, uh, I have so much more respect for anyone in um, local authority. Um, and before I was in there, I didn't really understand uh, what was stopping them from doing these things. But having been there and trying to be getting huge change happening whilst there's lockdown and pandemic and having to look after um, various vulnerable groups on that, um, I understand why you have to challenge where the where every penny is being spent. Local authorities have most officers of working their way up, and so they've been subservient the whole way through. Suddenly, putting them in a position of power where they have to make decisions about projects can be a really, really daunting thing. And I don't think there's enough support, but I do think that's an opportunity for public, for private sector, apologies, to come in with a wealth of experience and saying actually. I've looked at 15 projects and quite often this is one of the things that you would like to see, these are one of the things you wouldn't, but then the local authority is the expert in what makes that community worth investing in. Why are we doing it? I think one of the things that we do at Gleeds is we help people to write the brief so that they can then procure the right team to come out and deliver exactly what they want. But essentially the pair really, really need each other. Where it gets really complicated is when you're looking at how you develop it at the end, when it would be a really nice, easy thing if what councils needed was homes for a certain number of people, the increased business rates um, and the council tax um, and then and knowing, you know, and this this happier community of people so they can retain if they needed that and then private sector could come in and then they got profit by building units and then selling back and doing all of those things, then the world would be a really, really happy place because everyone would know what their job was and they would know how complementary it was. They need to have social and commercial coming together to create a well-rounded development. Unfortunately, it's not like that. And the public sector need a commercial return on it as well. Um, and I think that's where things get really murky is that there, there becomes this battle between who has what when you're after the same thing. I think it's really unfortunate. It's not something we're going to solve quickly. But I do think the more that we're open about what we need, and obviously we're very British, so still money becomes one of those things that we don't really talk to talk about until a bit late. But I do think that there are so many innovations and ideas about what could come up that actually it could broaden that conversation around what's important to us. And... Um, yeah, there's the, 
uh, I enjoy both, <laughs> um, but I really uh, sometimes wish it was easier to make the connection so the two could work together. Mm. No, really, really interesting. And as you're talking there, the saying comes to mind that probably well, you know, you're only ever as good as your brief. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think for both of us, you know, in the role that we take is, is super important, isn't it? And trying to, to, to lead in, in a way by enabling through documents, you know, like briefs and not just the document itself, but, mm -hmm. you know, the process of the brief, which is actually quite a broad process of stakeholder engagement of kind of consensus building yeah. and then of effectively leadership and, and direction is a really, really key part of any successful process and project, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I think they, they can't be underestimated. But I also think one of the um, issues that we have is quite often that briefs end too early. So you go out, you do your public engagement, you understand what it is, you now know what your output is. And this place is all about community living, and that's going to be really important. But lots of people here work and so they need vans rather than cars. So it's really important they're in the heart because that's someone's livelihood. But we, we know all of that, but what's the long-term view? Is this going to be a place where they're going to bring their kids and their kids are going to come along? So how are we setting it up to allow that longer term? The brief should really be the start of this emerging plan, but just with some deliverables for what you would like to see within a shorter period of time. And I think there's a lot more places that are getting it now, but um, I do think it's a really important fundamental part of understanding place identity, um, the whole idea of 15, 20 minute cities is, is terrific and I really like it, provided that you also have identity within there because ending up with, you know, several different cookie cutter type village centres within one town is never going to work and people are going to be heartbroken. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and the idea of having vision as well as the brief and sometimes mm. they're one in the same thing, sometimes that's what the brief is is the enabler of the vision i think is is really great and the perspectives that you've given today you know across public and private but also i think the the link between trying to do something really interesting and procurement you know how how, how the brief kind of ties into that about, about allowing space as well for these things to develop over time and not being too kind of binary with them at the very early stage of the process is really really interesting so thanks for that tash um Pleasure. so we have a tradition on the end of this podcast which is where a previous guest asked a question for the next guest and i'll ask you to write one down after this so um let me just let me just find this one which is this one here so if you had one call to action for the industry right now what would that be wow I think it would be to focus on uh, on outcomes rather than outputs. I think we have the capacity to leave space for innovation when we look at outcomes rather than outputs. And uh, I think everyone has the great intentions for what they're doing, but if they look too small, then they're not being they're not able to deliver it. So there you go. Yeah, outcomes, not outputs. Awesome. Yeah, love it. Really agree with that, and it really charms with everything we've talked about today. Actually, mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, thanks think for big. that. Time. <laughs> think big, be ambitious, and uh, and then work within the the systems to kind of shape these things through as we go. Thanks, Tash. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you for listening to the People Grow Places podcast. For more information, visit growplaces.com and follow us at We Grow Places across all social channels. See you next time.